Welcome to the film show on KBU. I'm S.W. Conser, and today we're dedicating the program to the breakthrough documentary style known as direct cinema. We have a 2014 interview by KBU's own Kate Welch, who, by very good fortune, found herself sharing a train car with the great filmmaker Albert Mazels. Mr. Mazels, who died in 2015, was working at the time on his final film, a documentary about the people he met while traveling on Amtrak's Empire Builder line. But first, let's listen to a conversation with a legendary filmmaking couple. D.A. Pennybaker and Chris Hedges have been celebrated in the documentary field for such groundbreaking films as Don't Look Back, Monterey Pop, Startup.com, Down from the Mountain, and The War Room. Chris and D.A., also known as Penny, traveled to Portland in 2016, and they sat down with me for a conversation about their work, which tends to focus on fascinating characters in politics, music, and culture. So without further ado, let's go and talk with D.A. Pennybaker and Chris Hedges. D.A. Pennybaker and Chris Hedges, thanks for joining us on the film show. Okay, thank you for being here with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, you two have been celebrated for documentaries such as Down from the Mountain and The War Room, which was uh, nominated for an Oscar, the James Carville, Bill Clinton documentary. And before that, Penny, um, Don't Look Back and Monterey Pop were, of course, celebrated. It, it seems like you don't have a preference for either political or cultural subjects, but one constant seems to be that you're always on the cutting edge of what's just about to break into the greater consciousness. And I'm wondering, is that is that a skill? Is that a radar of yours? Or is it an accident or a little of each? It, it's, a, it's, it's gambling. You know, if you, if you kept winning at blackjack, you'd think you had some wonderful forensic skill that nobody else had. But the fact is, it's sort of luck. I don't know. I mean, there have been, there have been films that we started and didn't finish. I mean, you know, I think we do look around us and try to get a sense of, you know, what we feel is different in the world. And I know uh, when I did the film Startup.com, which I started before the first internet boom and bust um, back in the 90s uh, to till 2001, I just felt like something was really happening in the world in terms of the internet. And, and I didn't know exactly what the story was. I mean, at the time I started, you weren't even allowed to sell things on the internet. They thought that was, you know, not ethically correct to do it. And of course, that changed instantly. And re the real story was the whole, you know, boom of internet commerce at the time. One of the things that's impressed me is that, um, all the direct cinema people seem to have never stopped doing what they do. Um, Albert Mazels was still riding the Amtrak uh, in his last year. Um, uh, Frederick Wiseman uh, just did a, an hour, hour and a half Q&A when he came to Queens. town. In Queens, yeah. The Queens film that he did, right. No, Fred is... is it's, uh, we're, we're, we're best friends. I, I just, but sometimes I can't stay awake for, for all of his. The films are quite long, but I, I do like his films. I like, and I like Fred very much. He's a very good friend. Penny Baker Hedges Films is justly famous for anticipating the music video, working with musical acts, but, but not just bringing out their entertainment value, but bringing out their cultural importance. 
for example, in Don't Look Back, there were the exchanges between Joan Baez and uh, Bob Dylan. Later on in Down from the Mountain, there was the, the importance of that cultural element in that music. So, you know, definitely there's that crossover between entertainment and politics, and I don't think there was uh, any better example than uh, your film about Al Franken when he was deciding whether to run for the yeah. Senate. Mm-hmm. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, I love that. Well, that was, Chris and, uh, and Nick did that film. Uh, but it was, uh, it was just amazing to see a person who starts out as a kind of party clown and ends up saying, I'm going to run for the Senate. It just kills me that you could see that in the same film. I mean, a lot of our films, I'd say most of our films, are about people who are incredibly passionate. And, you know, they're going to take some kind of life risk to pursue a goal. And I think Al Franken um, had been interested in politics from the beginning, uh, even when he was at Harvard and working for the Lampoon. And, you know, he was always a very political person. But to, you know, to see that he could really offer something by taking the next step from political satire into politics was a really big thing. And to be able to be there and watch him kind of when he made that that life decision was an incredible thing and uh, you know I think he's done an incredible job um, and I'm, I'm very proud of him and you know it, it was of course a totally fun film to do because when you're around somebody like Al Franken you know things are always interesting they're always funny and we've been lucky to be around you know some of the most amazing comedians of our time um, we did a film on Elaine Stritch and uh, she's another person who has impeccable timing and it's you know just so entertaining and then we did a film called Moon Over Broadway which uh, starred Carol Burnett and you know Carol Burnett is another one of those people who uses humor to you know make life better and I think that's what a lot of these these people do. I, I think the first project that you came aboard with Penny on was this town hall debate between Jermaine Greer and Norman Mailer, and, and Norman Mailer had sort of been friendly with, with Penny up until that point. Yeah. yeah, I knew him pretty well. Yeah, um, you know, Penny, when I first started working with him, had a whole wall full of films that he shot and had never edited. And, you know, he brought down a film reel and put it on the Steenbeck editing machine of this women's lib debate. And it was with Norman Mailer as moderator. He had just written Prisoner of Sex, which was basically a book about him trying to be a housewife. And, um, you know, on the panel was Jermaine Greer, uh, Jill Johnson, who was a lesbian writer for The Village Voice, Diana Trilling, a very you know, well-respected literary critic and the head of the National Organization for Women. And in the audience was anybody who was anybody in New York at the time. The word had gotten out that this was the place to be. So the audience was full of you know, writers, literati, and politicians, and whoever was anyone was there in the audience. And it turned out to be this unbelievable brawl that was an intellectual and otherwise brawl in some ways. It was a quite, I always think of it as the last happening of the 60s. And, um, you know, a lot of our films are like that. They're, they're the history of our times. And, you know, this film, uh, Tom Bloody Hall, is definitely the beginnings of a wider discussion of women's role in society. You know, we've been privileged to have as guests on the film show um, amazing direct cinema filmmakers such as 
Frederick Wiseman and the late Albert Mazels, and uh, we had Gina Lebrecht on, and this was uh, when she was in town to screen How to Smell a Rose, which was this intimate portrait of Les Blank and Richard Leacock. Yeah. And, and Penny, you go back, you go back decades with Richard Leacock, this British documentarian. I, I believe the first film that you worked on together was a, was a document of the trade exhibition in Moscow. It was called... He didn't work with... Oh, he didn't? Yeah, no. Okay. Well, I, did, I did work with Ricky while I was in Moscow. Al and I went to Moscow together. Uh, that was Albert Al Mazel's. This was uh, when there was a trade group from America and the kitchen sink debate between Khrushchev right. and Richard yes. Nixon took yes. place. Yes, but then later, Ricky came over with the New York Philharmonic and did the uh, Shostakovich 8th or whatever it was, and we helped him film that. And it was during that time that, that uh, Al and I and Ricky, working with a, a hand-wound a Cine special camera, which only shot 100-foot rolls. We, if we were going to do this, do this kind of film and make it work, we needed a sync sound portable camera, and none existed. So when we came back, that was what we set ourselves to do. And it took us two or three years, uh, with Time Life helping by putting up a lot of the money, uh, that we got a camera that, in the end, it would, would work for, for uh, a Monterey Pop where we'd have five different... Actually, we had seven cameramen on that, but one of them was an Aeroflex, a normal Aeroflex. The rest were the cameras that we had to build ourselves. Wow. Well, I've heard you say that you don't make documentaries, you make records of moments. And, That's probably true. And I, and I hope I get this right, that, that you didn't sort of think of yourself as a filmmaker at first. It sounds like you were a, a really skilled engineer, early in your life, and so was Richard Leacock, and so was... was physics major. So was Robert, Robert Drew from Life magazine. Yeah. So together, you endeavored to make a portable camera that could be shoulder-mounted with synchronized sound that would be much more portable than yeah. the ones that uh, had been used on tripods. And so when you took that into the 1960 primary when Hubert Humphrey was going up against uh, Jack Kennedy... Um, you were able to go into meeting rooms that the other members of the press were not able to and get intimate portraits that you almost can't imagine happening today. Well, what we got, it wasn't just, uh, of course, the, uh, the time life thing was always getting behind the story, getting behind the closed doors. Uh, so you saw a world that you didn't normally see. The thing that we were getting was conversations that you normally don't hear. And that was, that was a big jump because nobody had gotten that before. Uh, that, there was very little of that in filmmaking because most of, of, most of the conversation had to be scripted and written out in advance. Um, yeah, I think when this technology was invented, you know, it just changed the world, basically. Um, it gave everybody the ability to go around and tell stories about real life um, in real time and, and find a story that was as equally dramatic as a fiction story but about real people. And you know now that's gone to a whole other extreme because everybody can have a camera. When I began making these films, you know, films, documentaries were pretty much made by white men. I mean, the equipment was very exclusive uh, to get your hands on, and you know now that's all changed. Um, people, you know, in all different cultures can tell their own stories, and and that's a really unique thing. 
Right. We live in the 21st century when our portable devices, our mobile phones have cameras in them. But as, uh, as was said recently, uh, just because pencils are being sold to the masses doesn't mean everybody can be Shakespeare. Yeah, well, that's it. We have, at last, we have the movie pencil. And it enables people singly to consider making a film the way they would have 100 years ago of writing a novel. And that's a big step, an incredible step. Because I think uh, the films we're making, the kind of films, are a kind of new language. And, and people are learning it slowly, but in 20 years, I think it'll have an effect that we can't imagine now. People will be using it in ways that will seem now to us extraordinary. So the, 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 the category of filmmaking that you're best associated with is uh, direct cinema, which has been around for 50 years or so and was really made possible through the portable equipment that you helped invent. But it's also set apart by not having a sort of voice of God narration. It's really coming in and letting the subjects talk and not overly interpreting. Of course, you're going to interpret things through editing and through what you shoot. But um, how do you feel about the documentaries, the films that call themselves documentaries, but are much more shaped by the filmmaker that lean more towards advocacy? Some, some are good and, and persuade you of some possible thing, and some seem uh, a little hypocritical. I don't know, you know, that's the thing. It's like, it's like writing, you know, that good writing alone isn't necessarily the truth. And the thing that's so fantastic about the camera, when you think about it, which, and it's only been around for a couple hundred years, really, as a movie camera, is that when you point it at something, it can't lie. And that's an engaging aspect of whatever you do in film, because people want to see you show something that they can count on, that they know is going to be true. And that's a, that's kind of what we try to get at when we film people we don't tell them what to say if, 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 if it's taking a long time for them to get at it you don't say hurry up we, we, we this film's expensive and we're, we're running out short you, 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 you wait for the thing to be true and also you want people to be persuaded that they were there when it happened that, they, that it wasn't something you contrived later to make it look like it happened. The idea of being present when somebody does something important is an aspect that only film really can do. I, you know, from the beginning have always been uh, fascinated by the aspect of these type of documentaries because they're like theater and they're storytelling and and they follow a lot of the same structure as plays or or feature films where they follow a person through their life and they have a dramatic arc in the beginning middle and end and and you know because they're about real life um, they give you the feeling that you were there that you witnessed that moment and I think if you can give people that same feeling that you had when you witnessed it um, that's a very powerful aspect. The people surprise you sometimes, uh, just being with them, and and it isn't that it, they're unguarded. It's that they they take for granted that what you're going to do will benefit them. That it's not it's just your movie; it's their movie too. And I think we always try to 
confirm that sense with people so that they're not just helping you make your film, that, they, that it really is about what they do, and it shows it in a constructive and a, a truthful way, not in a way that's just promotional. And I, I think that that kind of works in our favor uh, most of the time. And it's, it kind of leads to a, a visibility in the world which hasn't always been there. I've been visiting with D.A. Pennybaker and Chris Hedges there in Portland for a screening of their documentary, Unlocking the Cage, a film that chronicles the legal struggle to grant personhood rights to mammals such as chimpanzees, elephants, and dolphins. D.A. Pennybaker and Chris Hedges, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. You're listening to a special film show episode all about the documentary movement known as Direct Cinema. I'm S.W. Conser. For our next segment, let's join up with the late great documentarian Albert Mazels, director of such films as Grey Gardens and Gimme Shelter. In 2014, Mr. Mazels was visiting Portland while working on his final film, In Transit. He was interviewed, along with his co-director Nelson Walker, by KBOO's own Kate Welch. Hi, I'm Kate Welch. I host the KBOO Food Show, but today I have a piece for the film show. It happened in December. I was on the train that travels between Chicago and Portland at the same time as legendary filmmaker Albert Mazels was riding that train with a filmmaking crew documenting train travel. I had the opportunity to sit with him on the train, visiting for hours, and along the way I invited him to come to Cebu, and he said yes. For the film show today, I've prepared a teaser of sorts so that tomorrow you will tune in for the full interview with Albert Mazels and Nelson Walker, co-filmmakers, at 11.30 a.m. right here on Cebu. Maybe we could start out by talking about what you are filming right now. Yeah. Well, Nelson and I are co-filmmakers, and we're making this film of people that we meet on trains. Uh, it's uh, a wonderful opportunity for people, when they get on a train, to meet people whom they otherwise would never have met. And uh, strangers become friends. And those friends become friends to everybody that, that uh, watches television. Uh, it's a wonderful way of bringing the whole world together so that we have ourselves, all of us, on, we're on common ground with one another, even though we're, we have differences. So when I was on the train, Maisel's Films passed out an um, introductory letter to let passengers know who they were and what they were doing. So from that, I'm going to read to you about Albert Maisel's. Albert Mazels is a pioneer of direct cinema who, with his brother David Mazels, was one of the very first to make nonfiction feature films, where the drama of life unfolds as it is without scripts, sets, interviews, or narration. His films include Gimme Shelter, Salesman, Grey Gardens, What's Happening, The Beatles in the USA. There are over 30 films that Albert Mazels has made. And then we could go on to 
the awards that he has been given, and they include a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Peabody, an Emmy, five Lifetime Achievement Awards, the Award for Best Cinematography at Sundance. Uh, Eastman Kodak saluted him as one of 100 world's finest cinematographers. The list of his accomplishments goes on and on. Now we'll listen to Albert Maisel's telling about the camera that he built himself during those early years. You worked those early years with your brother, and he did the audio, and you did the photography. Yes. And you had this really cool camera that you made yourself. Yes. There's a photograph. It's on the liner notes of Salesman. Not very much in focus. (laughs) Not very much in focus. That's my camera, though. See that circular thing? That's the circular thing at the front of the camera. And that thing just above the circle is the meter. The camera itself was designed to be shot from the shoulder. One innovation that was so important that we did was it made it possible for the sound person to be separate from the camera person. The 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 camera motor was at uh, perfect speed, and the, the uh, sound, the tape, because it stretched, it would be very hard to control the speed. The speed was fairly, fairly correct, not absolutely correct enough, but there was a, a signal put onto the tape which corrected its uh, improper speed so that uh, it made a perfectly parallel recording with the camera. And I had a few innovations that I don't think anyone else has ever copied. <laughs> had a mirror at the very front end of the camera, just by the beginning of the lens up front. And I could, as I'm filming, I could look at the mirror and see the, the aperture and change it without, without having put the camera down. And uh, I also had a Spectra light meter, which uh, I had also way up front, and I could look at that and see what exposure I should be shooting at. So uh, everything was done to make it so that I would be less of uh, an interference in in the situation and more of just an interested uh, witness. And more mobile. And more mobile, yeah. Yeah. Other cameras at that time were only three minutes in film. This was, uh, without going really big and heavy, we had 10 minutes. And it's all handheld, and if you look at salesmen, for example, there's not a single moment where you think, oh my goodness, it's not steady. It's totally steady, so you don't need a tripod. If you have a tripod, then people feel, oh, I can't move. I don't want to spoil that picture. It's another interference with the continuity of what's going on in their mind. Nelson, how heavy is your camera? <laughs> uh, it's only a few pounds. Right now we're actually shooting on HD cameras, uh, actually a variety of different cameras. We have smaller cameras. We have smaller cameras for tighter situations. We have sort of medium-sized ones for when we're kind of shooting things on the go. And then we have a bigger camera where we're going to be shooting landscapes uh, with both out, uh, both outside of the train and then on the train as we see the mm-hmm. landscapes going by through the window. The camera that I have uh, weighs only two pounds. Maybe another pound with for the microphone and such, but that's all. And uh, very good image, and totally quiet, of course. And I think I can run as much as eight hours without having to change tapes. 
on the full interview that we will hear on KABU tomorrow morning at 11.30 a.m., Albert talks about how he came to shoot some of his best-known films, and here's what he said about their good luck to capture the killing at Altamont in Gimme Shelter. How is it that we happen to get the killing on film? Just by chance, I was filming on the stage, and I couldn't see the killing, which was off to the side. And my brother, not knowing that it was going to happen, just happened to be on a truck and in full view of of that circle of uh, people. He, with the cameraman, got uh, got the killing. But we still don't know what the motive was of the Hell's Angel. We don't know exactly, so we can't really call it a murder the way so much of the news carried it. It's still a killing, and uh, it's still that mystery. IBM, a self-portrait, is playing at the Northwest Film Center, so I asked Albert about his making of the industrial films. The IBM... Film yes. is playing at the uh, Northwest Film Center yeah. in, on the 1st of February, right. and that, that was originally an info commercial. Yeah. Is that what you call it, an info? Uh... An industrial film, yeah. We uh, could see that we were either we're going to get money, which is difficult to get because of the nature of the filming that we're doing. It's, uh, it's not that commercial itself. Well, the Beatles turned out to be commercial, but uh, uh, so much of what we did and would do in the future was uh, a little more arcane than that. And uh, we want to make films that uh, come from our heart and not from the commercial necessity. So we pay for them from uh, making television commercials and industrials. So we were free to make the films exactly the way we wanted to. And that's so important, that creative freedom. So that's the film that is going to be seen in Portland for on the 1st of February. Oh, it's going to be seen? Yeah. But this is a film I made a long time ago. It is, isn't it? It was. I think it was the... Yeah, I know it was a celebration, an anniversary of IBM, whether it was the 25th year or the 50th year, I forget. But it was a, a, a good 25 years ago. It was more than that. It was, it was in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This one? Mm-hmm. Could you read it? Yeah, it says... Um, in this uh, IBM, a self-portrait, uh, 1964. Uh, in this early Maisel's film, the filmmakers visit the corporate headquarters of then burgeoning IBM, interviewing average workers, executives, and everyone in between. In the process, they reveal the inner workings of the newly christened technological age's frontier. In sharp contrast to current, uh, more calculated modes of corporate self-presentation, the Maisel's evoke an institution through everyday minutia and the individual psychologies of its workers. Yeah, so we made it in our style, which they appreciated. And to learn more about Albert Maisel's films, there's a couple websites you can go to. Uh, There's com and also org, which is a webpage of a documentary film center that uh, Maisel's folks have put together. You could also uh, go to the Multnomah County Library, like I did, and borrow one of the many Maisel's films. There's a number of them, and there's still more to watch. I'm Kate Welch for The Film Show.
Thank you, Kate. Kate Welch interviewed the late Albert Mazels back in 2014 while he was in Portland working on his final film, In Transit. I'm S.W. Concer, and you've been listening to a special episode of The Film Show featuring some of the pioneers of the documentary movement known as direct cinema. We hope you'll join us for part two of this series featuring Titicut Follies director Frederick Wiseman, as well as Gina Lebrecht, whose 2014 film How to Smell a Rose is a portrait of the friendship between documentarians Les Blank and Richard Leacock. Thanks to all the guests on today's show, D.A. Pennybaker, Chris Hedgedis, and Albert Mazels. Thanks also to the Oregon Media Production Association for their support and collaboration. And thanks to all our listeners on the radio dial and on the web. The audio for this show is available on our archive page, kboo.fm slash thefilmshow. And you can keep up with us on Twitter at kboofilmshow. As I-